Um, turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 1. Um, Paul is writing this letter during his three-year ministry in Ephesus around AD 55, and he's writing to the Christians in Corinth, which was um, a relatively new city rebuilt under Julius Caesar in 46 BC. And culturally and geographically, it was Greek, um, but it became a formal Roman colony in 27 BC. Um, and it became the, the capital of the province of Achaia. Um, it was a wealthy city that controlled the shipping ports and it controlled travel as well. And they were, they were proud, they were proud people, proud of, of their Greek philosophy and theology, proud of their sophistication. Um, they were proud of their sporting achievements too. They held the Ishmian Games, which were uh, similar to the Olympic Games, but these took place every two years instead of every four. And they included track and field, uh, wrestling, boxing, and chariot races. And it was all in the honor of the god of the seas, Poseidon, the patron god of Corinth. It was a wicked city, a prostitution, fornication. Um, they were wealthy, proud, wicked, boastful. It was a city that um, may have been resourceful for ministry, but the rivers of the culture flow fast. Now, even though we, we call this 1 Corinthians, he had already written um, a letter to them and he found the, the need to kind of correct them once more. And the overarching theme of the letter, you could say, is, is one of self-promotion and the correction of that. Now, can we think of a culture that is all about self-promotion? Um, let me think. <laughs> is it us? Um, so I'm going to look at uh, a passage which uh, you'll be familiar with, but perhaps we don't always connect the dots of warning that, that circle it or proceed from it. So um, we're going to turn to verse 18 and we'll carry through to um, verse 5 of chapter 2 if, if we have time. Now, the first chapter of which the bulk of this passage sits is the, is the soft intro into the polemical correction. It's the encouragement before the admonishment. It's the, the T before the three words smacks it in the face. So we sit comfortably, if not a little proud, uh, when we casually read it. Um, though Paul does make for correction with, uh, within this chapter about uh, divisions in the church and how some are already puffing themselves up uh, by name dropping. You know, some are saying, um, Apollos, he baptized me, you know, and yeah, you know, he, he grabbed me by the hoodie and he dunked me good and under, you know, we're cool, we're cool, we hang out together, you know, I've been hanging around with Cephas too, you know, I follow him on Twitter and uh, yeah, I think he follows me back, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like these, these, these cliques forming and these like cool crowds that are forming and, and Paul's like, what? Like, grow up. You know, um, I, I'm not a Christian celebrity. They're not Christian celebrities. We're baptized in Christ. We follow him. Christ is not divided. And Paul is, Paul is aware of the triggers of self-bloatery. And he for sure is about to correct them on that. But he's still keen to, to encourage them also. There is this kind of foundation of grace that truth is laid upon. 
Let's kick off with verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. His point is this, your perspective of the cross, the way you view the cross, determines your opinion or discernment of it. Those who are perishing see the cross very differently from those who are being saved. And there really are only, only two camps, this folly, foolishness, nonsense, or the power of God. There is no middle ground. Apathy is impossible. You must decide. And even if you choose to ignore the question of the cross, you are choosing folly. There's two gates two entrances, poles apart, heading to very different destinations. And then he quotes Isaiah 29. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Um, and then he expounds and comments upon it. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul is making a distinction between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Wisdom is not wisdom. Discernment is not discernment. There is a, a wisdom of the world that he will destroy and a discernment that he will thwart. Within God's, God's wisdom and sovereignty, he allows worldly wisdom and worldly discernment to continue in this present age, but he will in the future destroy and thwart man's ways. Now, when, when will he do that? When Jesus returns, they will have to acknowledge that the word of the cross is the power of God. And of course, when someone dies, they get to discover either uh, the real folly uh, of their worldly wisdom and discernment or just be blown away in the affirmation of the power of God in the resurrection of the man who perished upon the cross. Paul's primary target is the same as the prophets who, who he's quoting, the day of the Lord, the day of revelation, the manifestation of the power of God for the world to see, the great reversal of all things, including wisdom and discernment. Then he will reveal the truth. Fake news out, God news in. In the meantime, there is this sense of calling. Where is, Paul says, the wise amongst the scribes, a reference to the Jewish experts of scripture. Where is the debater, a reference likely to the professional uh, Greek orators? Where is the wise today in academia, the philosophers of those who pull the media strings, of the influencers, the podcasters, the preachers? It's worth asking the question, just because they have a Bible in their hand does not mean they behold wisdom. I have a book on my shelf about wisdom um, and its author, an accomplished preacher by worldly standards, has now been removed from his church for making uh, consistently unwise decisions. But Paul encourages us that we can play a part in helping people flip 
their, their worldly wisdom to godly wisdom. If we can help reposition their thinking so that they view the cross from a biblical perspective, they might just see the word of the cross as the power of God and not as foolishness. Does that make sense? After all, Paul points out, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, while everyone in the future will acknowledge the universal truth, he has already made foolish the wisdom of the world by resurrecting Jesus from the grave. He has revealed it, discerned by by softened hearts, and he will, on that day, reveal it to all regardless. But by then, the two camps will have been decided. Our preaching in the meantime, um, which is considered folly by the world, pleases God. Know that when you're mocked, when you're laughed at, when you're ignored, because of your testimony, the testimony that you deliver of Jesus and the cross, know that it pleases God. It pleased the Father when the Son nailed to the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They were blinded by their own worldly wisdom. They could not discern that they had just nailed the creator of the universe to to his own creation. And if Jesus could say that with blood pouring off his body, then we, in forgiving our mockers, please God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, having alluded to different categories of approach, Paul is now explicit in distinguishing the perspectives of Jew and Gentile. Within the unbelieving camp, there are two main positions behind the reasoning for rejecting the cross. So uh, from verse 22, it says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus performed more signs than could be written in any book, but the people of Israel wanted more. The more they hardened their hearts to him, the less he revealed himself to them. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He gave them the great sign of Jonah, resurrection from the dead. But the Jews didn't want a Messiah on a cross. They wanted the heavens to part. So They couldn't see past the cross. They couldn't see past the first peak of prophecy and onto the second. Now, under Roman rule, they understandably longed for Messiah ben David, but they missed Messiah ben Joseph that was in their midst. They couldn't discern the time of their visitation, the purpose of the cross, the resurrection, the period of sitting in heaven between the comings, the suffering before glory. Now, the Greeks, on the other hand, they seek 
worldly wisdom, a worldly logic, science, reason, if they cannot explain creation in six days, they cast it as folly. If they cannot explain a global flood, they cast it as folly. If they cannot explain the election of a people, they cast it as folly. If they cannot explain the Red Sea crossing, they cast it as folly. If they cannot explain the cross, they cast it as folly. The same goes today. We demand signs and wonders or we explain it away and elevate ourselves as wise. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Why does Paul say the cross is a stumbling block for some and folly or foolishness for others? But he's specific that it's the Jews that view the cross as the former and the Gentiles as the latter. Now, here's why. The Jewish people have the backstory. They behold the law of Moses, the prophets, the sacred writings. They're already on the correct path, heading towards the arrival of Messiah. Now, let's picture this. Imagine this, this toy figure represents the unbeliever. To begin with, a Jewish person. You don't have to explain to them who the God of the universe is. They already know, right? They started at Genesis 1.1. They've read about creation, about the fall, about corruption, Noah, Babel, their father Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the story of Israel who would carry the seed of promise to crush and restore their fortunes and so forth. So for this reason... When you see Stephen in Acts 7 preaching to the Jews, or, or Peter in Acts 3, when he speaks to the men of Israel, they start with Abraham. Why? Because it isn't necessary to completely flip their worldview about who God is, having to go right back to the start uh, before leading them down to the cross. So they recap the story from Abraham, which is the foundational covenant for the kingdom. And they lead them from there, the short walk, the short distance back along the path to the cross, a path that they're familiar with, and then show them, reveal to them that Jesus is their Messiah and King. They were just waiting for the Messiah to come crush and restore. So they stumble over the cross because it wasn't what they wanted or expected or discerned at that time. But Paul is very careful in his wording. He doesn't say that the cross caught them in a snare, meaning the death of Israel. He says they stumble, right? They haven't permanently fallen. Paul knows that they will one day stand again, and he's explicit about this in his other letters. Now, Gentiles, on the other hand, they're coming at a completely different angle. So for illustration, uh, let's say this toy man is, is now a Gentile. He is at 90 degree angle to the cross, right? They're heading perpendicular towards the Jews. They're on a perpendicular path. Now, this is so key for us to grasp the different paths, the different perspectives, because it will equip us in our understanding of how we should approach evangelism and discipleship. Now, after all, don't forget, Paul makes it clear that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are called. Now, here's, here's what we do so often. We preach the cross to a Gentile without, without any backstory, right? We're like this, 
right? And then the cross is completely out of context. It is foolishness. Now, I've previously ran internationally known evangelism courses that, that start with the cross, but the cross is out of context of the grand narrative. Well-intentioned church signs say, Jesus loves you, but it's foolishness to the Gentile. Why? Because it's stripped from the context of the narrative, not to mention that Jesus nor the apostles ever preached, God loves you, uh, certainly not to unbelievers. So for this reason, when Paul, when he's in Athens, he doesn't start with Abraham. Why? Because we need to reorientate the Gentiles starting back at the beginning. We need to take them from this perpendicular path to the correct worldview, the correct path, right? So Paul goes back to the beginning. It's not that he didn't preach Jesus. We read in Acts 17 that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. But when they asked him to give a presentation of the gospel, he doesn't reach immediately for the cross, right? They require a worldview transformation. He walks them through from the start of the story, saying the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and of earth, he explains who the true God is. If you preach the cross out of context, they will, they'll pin it up with all the other gods. So Paul explains that there is only one true God who sustains life and that all nations came from one man, Adam. And he explains that, that, that within God's grand narrative that people would feel their way towards him and find him and that the God of the Bible isn't a, an unspeaking God, like a distant unspeaking God, like the stone and the silver, and then Paul communicates the patience of God, but he calls them to repent because God's anointed man has fixed a day on which he would judge the world. And only then, once he has mapped out the story from Genesis to Revelation, does he place the offer of assurance to all because of the resurrection of this Messiah. Let us preach the cross and resurrection but let's do it within the preceding and subsequent context that surrounds it. We have to map out the context before we position the cross. So Paul may have only had two minutes to present, so he has to carefully select which parts of the narratives to include, but he manages to touch on the identity of God, on creation, on God's plan for reconciliation, on resurrection and coming judgment. Time is not an excuse. A long night chat or an elevator pitch, you can draw the framework to place the cross. These are the patterns that should assist in, in our approach. If we are to convince them with godly wisdom that Christ and the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the Jews, we, we recap some of the story with them, right? And they'll probably know it better than you. <laughs> but it's our job to highlight the messianic seed and retrace those steps with them, perhaps starting with Abraham. Or let's say the context of the conversation is about Passover. You could, you could start there and then work your way towards the cross. But keep it 
keep the narrative Israel-centric. And for the Gentiles, it's our job to take them from their current position, from the, from the, the, the path that they're on, to the, the biblical path, and then walk them through it. This is how we see the cross. How does the cross look like from, from the lens that I view it from? Now, we can't change their heart, right? That's between them and God. But it's about giving them the best opportunity to view the cross from a biblical perspective. Now, here is the twist. The problem that we have in the West is that the mainstream church does not even understand the grand narrative. Many Christians are, are still looking at the cross from a rabbit trail from the biblical path. Right? And only by the grace of God do we get the cross. We've compounded the issue of evangelism and discipleship because we fail to recognize that, that we are grafted into the story of Israel, super spiritualizing and watering down the gospel. Paul isn't embarrassed about explaining that, that everyone on earth came from one man. And most of us are like, hey, Adam, well, he probably wasn't real. Maybe God used evolution. Noah and the ark, I mean, it's a nice story, but you know, uh, Moses, maybe he just parted like a shallow stream that the Israelites walked through. And who is the true Israel anyway? Jesus wouldn't return as a, as a warrior, would he, in judgment? It's worldly wisdom that we've strapped onto the back of the gospel. You want to convince them of the truth of the resurrection, but you deny the context that surrounds it. Why would we package the cross in man's wisdom when the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men? Why would we desire to weaken the message of the cross? The gospel of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and its foolishness to the Gentiles. And we can help them see it for what it really is, but only if we see it truly for ourselves first. And when you truly see it under the light that the Old Testament concerns the Christ, you see that the word of the cross is the power of God. In verses 26 to 29, we read that God's so-called foolish wisdom is displayed by whom he has chosen for salvation. It says this in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. How encouraging is that? Of all the philosophers of Corinth, he called the lowly. Consider it. He's asking the Christians of Corinth to consider it. And I think we should also consider our calling too. You know, I, I thought as a baby Christian previously that if only someone really famous, a celebrity, gave their life to Christ, then everyone would follow. And that's just not how God works. You know, the last thing that you want is to give a baby um, a microphone. You know, in fact, Paul warns against that. My kids took their, uh, their first steps around about the year mark. And uh, I see kids walking at like eight, nine months. And I just think, good luck with that. You know, it's an eight month old brain walking around. <laughs> you know, it's not a good idea to give a baby a lot of power, like giving a baby a chainsaw. God did not call the elevated. He didn't call us to Christian celebrity either. And I see this kind of, this trend where 
a Christian makes, makes a stand for Christ, perhaps a righteous stand for Christ, and they become well known within Christian circles. But then because people are looking up to them and they're hanging on every word, and then that this, this elevated person seems to assume an unnatural position of authority in the body of the church, and this can be dangerous. And we can, we can confuse offices as well. We grasp the reason of the fivefold ministry, the overlapping of, of gifts. Yes, teachers can be prophetic, or those with gifts of administration may have gifts of evangelism and so forth. But we, we tend to look to the voice that, that re- resonates with us uh, for teaching. Right, So I see this common trend on social media where people are hanging off the words of, say, prophetic voices or, or voices who have been elevated for whatever reason, and it's taken as gospel truth teaching. And then there's this kind of jostling of position within, within families, within churches, within ministries, within Christian celebrity. The Lord calls a bunch of lowly people and he's ordered them into a posture that his power can manifest. But today, our order is being distorted in part because of self-promotion, resulting in a reduction of his power being demonstrated. God didn't call us to all podcast as well. <laughs> in, this, in this time of lockdown, podcast and camera equipment apparently is is selling out online because everyone has started recording themselves, Christians included. And we must balance out what James says about teachers. Not many of you should become podcasters. (laughs) I saw that on Twitter. Um, I thought it was spot on. Of course, James said that not many of you should become teachers. Um, But perhaps if he was alive today, he would include podcasters. We are all called but we're not all called to the office of prophet with a small p or or of teacher right he hasn't called all of us from a lowly position to elevate your position in the world but rather to elevate your status before him right now what is god's reasoning he tells us in verse verse 27 onwards but god chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The Bible goes to great length to state the characters of of those that are called and reveal that not many were of noble birth. So Abraham, he was chosen from a pagan family. Moses Moses may have grew up in the Egyptian royal family, but he was chosen as the younger brother, a lonely slave baby in a basket escaping slaughter. And and then he murdered an Egyptian before running off. Uh, and, and And then according to him, he he had a stutter and a communication problem. Uh, take David, he was the little younger brother who killed a man's wife so that he could have her. And then you have, have Jacob, who was the younger, and then the trickery that he employed. And it makes the point that God 
doesn't choose you because you're, you're a good person, because you're charismatic, an influencer, whatever your role may be within the body. We would, we would, I think, choose a master of communication to deliver the law and lead the people of God. But God chose a stutterer. Right? He bought you as the lowly wreck that you are to pour out his true wisdom so that as the mouthpiece for the Lord, boasting belongs to him. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It is because of him, not because of you, not because you developed profound thought, because of Jesus, whom we received, his wisdom is freely given to us too. He elevates us from, from lowly and evil to esteemed in the eyes of God and righteous. And then he slowly cleanses us, what we call sanctification. And one day we will be fully redeemed. And this is in stark contrast to other religions who say, work, 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 and you, you may be good enough. Or even the Roman Catholic faith that says you are elevated from, from baby baptism and then you, you kind of have to pay penitence to keep the thing floating in the air, to keep the thing ticking. No, Paul says, it's all on Jesus because of him we receive wisdom and righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Why? So that boasting can only be accredited to the Lord God. True wisdom belongs to the believing who are, who are receiving or given, who can only boast in the giver of true wisdom. I enjoy Paul's description of his first visit to them, um, starting the first verse in chapter two. It says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It mirrors what he said in the, in the verse before this passage, that he came to to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If we know this to be true, then why do we present ourselves as worldly wise when we know we are fools to them? Is it to impress each other? These Christians in Corinth, they had they'd flowed with the culture there was immorality, lust, backbiting. They were suing each other. Some distorted marriage. Some honoured the gods of the culture. Feminism was infiltrating the church. They excluded the poor so they could sit more comfortably. They were abusing their spiritual gifts. It became less about edifying the church and more about, hey, look at me. I'm right. Look at me. I have special powers. Their, their hearts were not postured towards Jerusalem and the centrality of the people there. They were becoming like the Greco-Roman orators who promoted their own wisdom and insight and self-image. Sorry, was I, was I talking about them or us? Uh, very similar. If selfie sticks existed then, they'd be in every market stall as they are today. There is this admiration of 
a worldly sophistication that, that has penetrated the body of believers. We're holding up the cross in one hand and worldly wisdom in the other. You know, we, we love to give each other titles and put on fancy dress and hold ourselves higher than the laity. It appears there's, there's like a competition of who can write the best article. You know, this is the article of the day. This is the book of the moment. This person's writing skills are second to none. There's this obsession with how sophisticated our presentation is. And you know what? My favorite authors, writers, they don't use stunning words and over complex phrases. I always have to read more carefully when people's writing skills are, are up there, so to speak, right? Because as I've read recently, jaw-breaking words often cover up very sloppy thinking. It's easier to hide flaws in your thinking when, when you're so skilled, right? If you're not careful with your lofty speech and eloquent words, you can empty the cross of its power. Now, that doesn't mean we turn our backs on scholarly or academic work, but we must recognize that God calls the lowly and the professors and scholarship, if they don't come to the scripture as a child, they will be doing worldly inspired hermeneutic, expressing the worldly philosophy and it's sold as Christianity. I was on a leadership course um, and uh, the, the teacher said, if a man with much charisma and obvious skill set, and he's highly intelligent, if he asks to be on leadership, be very careful, you know. In light of the return of Christ, I believe we are about to head into a time where leadership's going to be flipped on its head. I really do, in, in, in the coming years. Because, you know, for, for those of us who are in pop church, we're now so used to a sleek image. And for those, for those of us that are in kind of big institutional church, we're so used to titles and ceremony that we now struggle to recognize good teaching. We think a good talk is a good preach. There's a difference. You know, or a highly qualified man must give a good preach, right? If I, if I come away with a memorable catchphrase, it must have been good. If I come away feeling like I'm part of something really important in society, yeah, it must have been good. David Porson, um, I call the last great British Bible teacher, he would just stand there and deliver a message without entertainment, slick slides, uh, without posh titles or fancy clothes. But today we expect, no, we demand we demand the worldly wisdom delivered through an energetic show or an impressive tongue, right? And there's this real problem that we can't recognize good teachers and preachers anymore. We really can't because we're flowing down the Corinthian river. And so we grab at anything that feels good momentarily rather than standing firm and being prepared to slowly grow and mature. There is a real problem for the church as we near the return, his return as we get closer. So you have a flashy, worldly wisdom preaching and its audience demands it. And it's not the leader's fault or, or the sheep's fault, it's both, right? 
And I believe God's going to shake things up. And when chaos ensues, men not of noble birth will lead the charge. Jesus chose grubby, straight-talking fishermen, right? Jesus himself was born in a lonely manger from a northern town, right? From a relatively poor or average family. And he walked to the cross and will one day be king of the earth. Let's walk to the cross with him and encourage others to join us so that we can participate in his kingdom. How did Paul come to them? It says in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Today, we want the Stephen Furtick's to be guest speakers. You know, he'll entertain me, or an academic. I bet if Paul came to most churches, we would say, you know, he could have got dressed for the occasion. <laughs> He's not the most articulate. His preach wasn't technically formed the way that they, they told me in seminary. I mean, he seems to know his stuff, but he's a bit intense. He's, he's actually quite rude. I wouldn't want him every week. Weakness, fear, trembling. Paul's failings were accompanied in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The more charismatic and polished the preacher, the harder it is to discern the wisdom of man from the wisdom of God. Now, I'm not against charisma or prep, but I've heard it said before that when discovering your preacher is a wolf, that I couldn't see past the pinstripes. Now, why? If God has, has kindly taken us from here, Right? From the worldly perspective, the perpendicular path to destruction, and he's grafted us into the biblical perspective, the path to Messiah. Why would we burrow a tunnel back to the worldly path and then preach the cross? Paul said that he had reason for confidence in the flesh and as an educated man, a Hebrew of Hebrews with authority, yet he chose the path of weakness that leads to the power of the cross. Paul's message is this, you were of the sophistication, the wisdom of the world, but I chose you, the least of them, who are now presented as even more foolish with the godly wisdom. So then don't try to become the Christian version of the world with sophistication as the face of you. Worldly wisdom is simply an airbrushed face of the wicked, proud, boastful. It really is as simple as the sophistication, the wisdom of the world and the power of self-promotion versus the wisdom of God and the power of the cross. The time is coming when God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and thwart the so-called discernment of the so-called discerning. Strip off the worldly sophistication, choose faithfulness, over fame. Soak up the wisdom of the Lord. Dust off the mockery and go preach Christ crucified. Maranatha. I'm Stephen Buckley. To hear more, visit myking.com.